Welcome to the African-American Hour. I'm Rosemary Onkwe, bringing you readings from the following publications. And Scape, A-N-D-S-C-A-P-E, News One, The Grio, The Root, Ebony, The Wichita Beacon, and The Community Voice. First, I'll begin with a poem written by Amanda Gorman, an American poet and activist. She delivered her poem, The Hill We Climb, at the inauguration of the United States President, Joe Biden. Tweeted a poem about the Tuesday's Texas elementary school shooting. Schools scared to death. The truth is, one education under deaths. Stooped low from bullets that plunge when we ask where our children shall live and how it takes a monster to kill children. But to watch monsters kill children again and again and do nothing isn't just insanity, it's inhumanity. The truth is one nation under guns. What might we be if only we tried? What might we become if only we'd listen. A poem by Amanda Gorman. The next article is titled, After Shootings in Buffalo and Texas, It's Clear Dark Days Require Deep Love. This is a commentary written by Dante Stewart, May 26, 2022. The morning the news of the Buffalo, New York massacre came crashing against the hollowness of my heart, I struggled to make sense of what I'd just heard. I rubbed my temples, bouncing between writing out tweets and deleting them, inhaling and exhaling, under the sound of Kendrick Lamar's voice. I don't remember what I had for breakfast that day, or what my children said, just snatches of words, white and boy and with a gun, and then murdered black people. The victims' faces, though, I have not stopped thinking about their faces since that day. I think grief and trauma do that to us. It sits so deeply in our mind that it turns an easy morning into a time of weeping, tossing, the imagination into an abyss of chaos that could only be described as terror. And then there is the question, when will enough be enough? Unfortunately, that question seems impossible to answer. Less than two weeks after an 18-year-old gunman walked into that Topps grocery store on Buffalo's east side to kill as many blacks as possible, Another 18-year-old shot his way into an elementary school in Uvalde, Texas, killing at least 21 people, including 19 children. Enough should have been enough years ago, but we keep finding ourselves here time and time again. My grandmother called after the Buffalo shooting, but I missed it. I called her back, creasing the pages of my small black journal hoping somehow to catch a word of passing wisdom as she spoke. But she didn't pick up. In a flash, my mind went to the images of the black elders who were murdered in that grocery store, 
I save them to my computer, and now they're staring back at me. When the shooter entered the store in one of the blackest neighborhoods in Buffalo, intent on carrying out his racist plot, I wondered if he ever considered that death does not just rob us of life, but it also robs us of peace. Did he ever consider that the people he killed, those who hid and those who watched him, be apprehended as if he just said a bad word rather than carried out a lynching, would feel this grief as the expression of years of terrorism that sits in our bodies? Of course, the answer is no. I am still in disbelief. I am also caught between asking questions that make me feel like a ticking time bomb of rage and finding relief in the things that have been making me feel somewhat alive, looking for answers in books, talking to my friends about what we already know about racism, hugging my wife, kissing my kids. These days, I stare at my computer, grasping for answers, crying with friends, and praying that my wife and my children will be safe. I remind myself that the presence of a hug is worth more than the bullet of a gun. For the last few years, I have made a practice of remembering the names of murdered black people who deserve to be remembered, even as the world attempts to erase them. I guess I believe there is something spiritual about this practice. Maybe I wonder to myself, if I physically write down their names, then I could drive out the numbness I feel over the continued loss. Just two years ago, I wrote down the names of George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, and Breonna Taylor. Just two years ago, I put three black hearts beside their name and outlined the letters in clouds. Just two years ago, I called my grandma and asked how she felt. I wondered if those names were as present and painful as Emmett Till for her, and if their murders sit in her 80-year-old body, making her feel as tired as I felt. We be in a rut, she told me then. We been in a rut. I asked her if she ever thought about running, moving up north like her brother Sambo did in the 1960s, after having slapped the taste out of a white man's mouth, laughing his way to Baltimore. I asked if she and Granddaddy ever dreamed of someplace other than here. I was born, I'm going to live, and I'm going to die in the South, she said, and I laughed. Here I am, two here I am, two years later, calling her again, devastated that we are still adding names to the list. I tell her I'm sorry that she, as a black Southern woman, has had to give this country her best and endure the worst. And I say I'm sorry that Uncle Sambo is dead, and that Granddaddy is dead, and that she had to hear about those who look like her being murdered during a quick run to the store. I say I'm sorry that she still lives in a country where some believe white people deserve the best things on earth, while black people have to wait for the best things in heaven. That low-down boy, she said, went and killed all those black people. If I can be completely honest, we have died so much and at such staggering rates that it has almost become normal. 
between the violence, the racism, and COVID-19, I have almost run out of tears and words that feel like they do these tragedies justice. It is easy to forget that I only experience their pain vicariously, and that when the Bible says mourn with those who mourn, it doesn't take into account that distance can do something to those feelings, and being overwhelmed by the news can make it hard to cry. Yet I have forced myself to write their names. Ruth Whitfield, Aaron Salter Jr., Pearly Young. Aaron Salter Jr., Pearly Young, Roberta Drury, Celestine Cheney, Hayward Patterson, Andre McNeil, Catherine Cat Mosley, Geraldine Chapman Talley, Margus Morrison. I write their names and whisper them to myself. I don't want to forget them. Under their names, I write a eulogy. You deserved more. You didn't deserve hatred. You didn't deserve terror. You deserve to be here. I love you. We love you. You deserved more. In the essay, Dark Days, James Baldwin writes that to be Black was to confront and to be forced to confront a condition forged in history. The condition he was referring to is white supremacy, which hasn't died with time and passing generations. It is inherited and transferred, like a prized possession that only yields destruction and erasure. Sadly, the ones who must pay the ultimate price are not those who created a world that benefits whiteness and claims divinity upon itself and damnation upon others, but those like me and like my wife and like my children and like my parents and like all who have dreamed of breath amid the chokehold of racism. Before someone ever kills a person with their hands, they have already killed them in their minds and in their hearts. If you have been convinced that another person's freedom means your oppression, you will do whatever you can to control and destroy their existence. Let's be clear. White terrorism has always been the greatest threat to black life and what all desire in this democratic experiment. It seems that history tells the story of an insatiable desire for our suffering. What is most enraging is that so many are allowed to do it in the schools while they sit in the stands, while they sit behind computers, while they are called to protect and serve, while they stand behind pulpits, or even when they put forward legislation and do so without ever considering how their ignorance and hatred become a death sentence. It has become clear to me that many people in this country are more concerned about protecting a world that benefits their children than they are about dismantling a world that harms ours. Racial terrorism has always been a tool of choice when people feel that those who are not like them are too free. Whether that means a mass shooting, like what we saw in Buffalo, or the kind that tries to control curriculum, or the kind that spews hatred at those calling out racism, or the kind that views immigrants as invaders, this is not a betrayal of the American tradition. This is the very embodiment of it. 
This is not just bad individuals. This is the fruit of a white supremacist nation. Still, we must somehow go on. You know, Baldwin writes, how utterly improbable it is, indeed miraculous, that we can still have a drink or a pork chop or a laugh together. Early yesterday morning, my son crawled into our bed smiling and asked for a snack. As I fixed his chocolate chip waffles with no syrup, he grabbed a package of sliced oranges before asking a question he asked me 10 times the day before. Daddy, do you want to be my best friend? Always. Later, when we arrived at his school for drop-off, he yelled out, Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol, there, right on the double, before breaking into a high-pitched laugh that sounded like my grandmother's. I got him out of the car and walked with him to school. Slow down, Asa, I told him as he ran ahead of me. I greeted the teachers as I walked by before asking him, You're going to run into class without telling me you love me? He stopped, turned around, and hugged my neck while I kneeled to his level. I love you, Daddy, he said before repeating our morning affirmation. I am brave. I am kind. I am beautiful. I can do anything. I will see you later. I hugged him as tightly as I could. On the way to school that morning, I heard about a shooting at a Texas elementary school. I kept thinking about those children and their parents and how they likely did what my son and I did, thinking we'd see each other later, but now they're gone. Our children should not have to die before some realize they deserve to be safe, celebrated, free, cherished, remembered, loved, protected, and fought for. They deserve to experience freedom while they're alive. In Sister Outsider, Audre Lorde once wrote, Our children cannot dream unless they live. They cannot live unless they are nourished. If you want us to change the world someday, we at least have to live long enough to grow up, shouts the child. Thoughts and prayers cannot contain the emotions of this moment. There is only grief and anger. I pull up the images and have written down the names of the victims we know so far. At press time, the victims are Xavier Lopez, Uzuya Garcia, Eva Mirles, Nevea Bravo, Irma Garcia, Amari Garcia, Maiti Juliana Rodriguez, McKenna Lee Elroyd, Ellie Garcia, Tess Mata, Annabella Guadalupe Rodriguez, Rogelio Torres, Alicia Ramirez, Aise Camelo, Luivanos, Jalaya Nicole Celogiro, Miranda Matias, Elijah Cruz Torres, Jose Flores, Alexandria Lexi, Anaya Rubio. While I stare intently at those images and pray over their names, I see in their eyes the same thing I see in so many of us. Courage, wonder, beauty, freedom, desire, pleasure, honesty, commitment, struggle, and life. But they were taken from this world. And that haunts me. That grieves me. 
and that makes my eyes dry even as my heart is drowning in an ocean of despair. And for that, I want to say to each of these families, to so many of us who live while vicariously experiencing their suffering, I'm sorry, you do not deserve to carry both the argument for your humanity and the love necessary to protect it. And I know somewhere deep down inside, the miracle that Baldwin speaks of, the ability to experience joy is present in all of us. It is present in every inhale and every exhale. It is present in every tweet and in every tear. It is present in every shout for our lives and for every footstep that will stand in our stead. It is present it is present even when it is terrorized. It is present even when it is weak. And it is important to remember that the presence of that miracle depends on our ability to see it again and again, and in the worlds of Baldwin accepted. They do not see us as we see ourselves, and we do not all live at their mercy. We hold grief, we know terror, but we also know the love that refuses to let this racist world have every part of us. And it is our job to hold it, love it, protect it, and honor it so that it doesn't grow cold under the weight of the world. Whatever part that is in your hand and in your mind and on your lips, protect it. Do whatever you must to feel again, to remember the dead, to fight for the living, to not let their suffering or your own be in vain or erased. And when the moment presents itself, remember that healing and liberation are as much about resting and being free and being together as they are about resisting. They were trying to be whole, Baldwin says. They were and we are. Dante Stewart is a, is a theologian, essayist, and cultural critic. He is also author of Shouting in the Fire, an American epistle. He is currently studying at the Kander School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia. This article was published by Anscape, May 26, 2022. The next article is titled, Pfizer Says Three COVID Shots Protect Children Under Five, written by the Community Voice staff, May 24, 2022. Three doses of Pfizer COVID-19 vaccine offer strong protection for children younger than five, the company announced Monday, another step towards shots for the littlest kids, possibly beginning in early summer. Pfizer plans to submit the findings to U.S. regulators later this week. The Food and Drug Administration already is evaluating an application by rival Moderna to offer two-dose vaccinations to TOTS and set June 15th as a tentative date for its independent scientific advisors to publicly debate the data from one or both companies. The news comes after months of anxious waiting by parents desperate to vaccinate their babies, toddlers, and preschoolers, especially as COVID-19 cases once again are rising. The 18 million youngsters under five are the only group in the U.S. not eligible for COVID-19 vaccination. 
Pfizer has had a bumpy time figuring out its approach. It aims to give TOTS an extra low dose, just one-tenth of the amount adults receive, but discovered during its trial that two shots didn't seem quite strong enough for preschoolers. So researchers gave a third shot to more than 1,600 youngsters from age six months to four years during the winter surge of the Omicron variant. In a press release, Pfizer and its partner, BioNTech, said the extra shot did the trick, reviving up the children's levels of virus-fighting antibodies enough to meet FDA criteria for emergency use of the vaccine with no safety problems. Preliminary data suggested the three doses series is 80% effective in preventing symptomatic COVID-19, the company said, but they cautioned the calculation is based on just 10 cases diagnosed among study participants by the end of April. The study rules state that at least 21 cases are needed to formally determine effectiveness, and Pfizer promised an update as soon as more data is available. While the vaccine effectiveness likely could change somewhat, all of this is very positive for those parents who are looking forward to having a vaccine for their younger children in the coming months, said Dr. William Moss, M-O-S-S, of the John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, who was not part of the study. If FDA confirms the data, the vaccine could be an important tool to help parents protect their children, agreed Dr. Jesse Goodman of Georgetown University, a former FDA vaccine chief. But he cautioned that it is essential to track how long protection lasts, especially against serious disease. What's next? FDA vaccine chief Dr. Peter Marks has pledged the agency will move quickly without sacrificing our standards in evaluating tot-sized doses from both Pfizer and Moderna. Comparing the two companies' approach to vaccinating the littlest kids promises to be challenging. Moderna asked FDA to authorize two shots, each containing a quarter of the dose given to adults. While that spurred good levels of virus-fighting antibodies, Moderna's study found effectiveness against symptomatic COVID-19 was just 40% to 50% during the Omicron surge, much like for adults who've only had two vaccine doses. We've learned in older children and adults that we really need three doses to get protection against newer variants like Omicron, Moss said. That's something Moderna plans to study, and Moss said he didn't expect the question would hold up FDA authorization of the first two doses. Complicating Moderna's progress, the FDA so far has allowed its vaccine to be used only in adults. Other countries allow it to be given as young as age six, and the company also is seeking FDA authorization for teens and elementary age kids.
The FDA has tentatively planned for its expert panel to consider Moderna's vaccine for older kids a day before taking up the question of shots for the littlest. If FDA clears either vaccine or both, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would have to recommend whether all kids under five should receive the shots or only those at high risk. While COVID-19 generally isn't as dangerous to youngsters as to adults, some children do become severely ill or even die. And the Omicron variant hit children especially hard with those under five hospitalized at higher rates than at the peak of the previous Delta surge. It is not clear how much demand there will be to vaccinate the youngest kids. Pfizer shots for 5 to 11-year-olds opened in November, but only about 30% of that age group have gotten the recommended initial two doses. Last week, U.S. health authorities said elementary-age children should get a booster shot, just like everyone 12 and older is supposed to get, for the best protection against the latest coronavirus variants. This article is titled, Pfizer Says Three COVID Shots Protect Children Under Five, written by the Community Voice staff, May 24, 2022. The next article is titled, Open Enrollment, Childhood Literacy Included in Kansas $6.4 Billion Education Budget, written by Miranda Moore, M-O-O-R-E, Wichita Beacon, May 26, 2022. A bill that funds K-12 public education in Kansas is now law packed with $6.4 billion in funding and policy proposals that, among other initiatives, changes rules on how and where students may attend school. But getting there wasn't easy. Governor Laura Kelly signed the measure on May 17th, bringing to a close weeks of negotiations and contentious disagreements. But at the end of the legislature's first veto session in late April, lawmakers passed the education budget generally along party lines. The bill did not please everyone. Kelly cited the measure's lack of $30 million she requested to boost funding for special education services. Some Republican lawmakers argued that past court decisions were forcing them to spend more on education than they would like. I have a big problem with giving school districts any more money, State Senator Renee Erickson, Republican Wichita, said during closing remarks in a conference committee hearing finalizing the bill. The conference committee consists of three lawmakers from each chamber with broad authority to negotiate and write the final bill that will be voted on by the legislature. We have heard time and time again the overwhelming needs of the state. To allocate more money voluntarily for education goes against my intellect, 
Erickson added, the Wichita lawmaker voted in support of the budget, which passed mostly along party lines. The state's annual education appropriation is how school districts get a huge portion of their annual funding. Most school district funds are issued through foundation grants determined by a funding formula that uses a per student rate. Lawmakers determined $4,846 per student for the 2022-2023 school year, up from 4,706 the year before to tally the amount each district gets. Lawmakers included a number of policy items unrelated to the budget, such as mandating open enrollment across district boundaries, allowing students to split public school attendance and other options, and expanding eligible programs under the Kansas Promise Scholarship. Lawmakers appropriated $6.4 billion <clears throat> Lawmakers appropriated $6.4 billion statewide for education for fiscal years 2023, which starts July 1st. Of that, $4.2 billion will come from the state's general fund. That number includes the state's funding for public school daily operation, operations, including per-student funding that goes directly to districts, special education services, and employer contributions to state retirement funds. Also included in the $6.4 billion are initiatives aimed at responding to the mental health needs of students. Around $10.5 million is earmarked to continue the Mental Health Intervention Team pilot program which aims to connect students with mental health centers to reduce barriers to therapy. The program launched in the 2018-2019 school year in nine districts and within two years expanded to 212 schools in 56 districts. Lawmakers want to establish a free for students virtual math program using $4 million in federal funds from the American Rescue Plan, ARPA. The law mandates that the program be available in multiple languages. The budget also appropriates $2.5 million for school food assistance, $8.4 million for the Parents as Teachers program, and $5 million for, gun, for school safety grants, which includes $1 million in ARPA funds. The bill does not include an additional $30 million in special education funding that Kelly requested. State law requires that the legislature fund 92% of school districts' special education costs above what federal funds pay for, but it provides no way to enforce the requirement. The Kansas State Department of Education said that the legislature has never met its funding obligations, 
conservative lawmakers and advocates have said otherwise. Representative Christy Williams, Republican, Augusta, and chair of the House Committee on K-12 Education Budget, said during conference committee hearings that special education is adequately funded according to her calculations. Those differ from the rate calculated by KSDE and the economists who prepare the state's budget. Mark Tallman, T-A-L-L-M-A-N, Associate Executive Director of Advocacy for the Kansas Association of School Boards, said that special education is funding, but at the cost of other programs. Because the state isn't funding its formula, that pulls more money out of what we might call regular education to cover those extra costs, Tallman said. The education budget includes a requirement that school districts accept students who do not reside in that district and prohibits districts from charging tuition for out-of-district students. If there are more students than there are available openings, districts are required to set up a lottery process for admissions. The open enrollment requirement starts in the 2024-2025 school year. School districts must determine how much space exists for out-of-district students. If there are more spaces than applicants, school districts are required to enroll all interested students. If a student is denied, the district is required to provide a reason why. The law prohibits districts from admitting or denying students based on ethnicity, national origin, gender, income level, disabilities, English proficiency, academic success, aptitude, or athletic ability. The state funding will follow a student into their new district. Nothing in this law changes how school finance is based on enrollment, Tallman said. Additional per-student funding, for example, money sent to schools for special education students or high-risk students will follow the student. Critics of the open attendance policy said that questions around capacity and disagreements over non-admission could lead to funding, could lead to conflict. Some school districts in high growth area, such as Andover and Valley Center near Wichita, may not have the capacity to enroll any out of the district students, said Leah Flitter, F-L-I-T-E-R. Included in the budget is a program that seeks to improve literacy rates in elementary school students. It established the Every Child Can Read Act, which requires participating schools to provide targeted interventions for third graders using specific curriculums designed by legislature. Critics of the act said that the curriculum mandate means the legislature is effectively overriding the KSDE, making it difficult to update or adjust the curriculum as the need arises. It is concerning that the legislature has determined what should be included in student instruction 
instead of the expert staff at the Department of Education. Lobbyists for the Kansas Board of Education wrote in testimony opposing a similar policy in a different bill. Listing it in statute indicates you don't believe that the KSDE staff has the training to lead this effort. Additionally, including specific lists of instructional strategies in statute would require a change in law whenever outdated strategies need to be removed or new ones added, the lobbyist added. Depending on individual needs, the required targeted intervention could mean one-on-one -on -one teaching, tutoring, small groups, or summer school, all of which the Act mandates that the school provide. Teachers will be required to submit reports each semester to parents detailing their child's assessment and progress. Schools will be required to track and report results of the program to KSDE. The agency would report statewide results to the governor and legislature. The bill raises the per student rate that schools receive for virtual students to $5,600 from $5,000 and prohibits virtual schools from providing financial incentives for students to enroll. The bill also gives schools $709 per past course up to six courses per year for virtual students under the age of 20 who had previously dropped out of high school. State Representative Susan Estes, ESTES, Republican Wichita, wrote that the prohibition on financial incentives would be a proactive measure to prevent abuse of tax dollars. The bill also codifies alternative education arrangements that allow students from grades 6 to 12 to earn course credits in non-classroom settings, such as internships or apprenticeships, or apprenticeship programs coordinated with supervising organizations. Advocates and administrators testified on a similar bill and said that such alternative education arrangements are already included in many school curriculums but that the proposal might make these programs more widely available throughout the state. Another provision in the bill allows students to enroll in a public school part-time while they are enrolled elsewhere, such as homeschool or private school. While the bill requires school districts to develop policies to allow part-time enrollment, districts would not be required to accommodate every request. In testimony for a similar bill, supporters of a part-time enrollment policy touted the flexibility of the arrangement, while opponents questioned how schools could ensure part-time students were meeting benchmarks that measure students' progress and success. The bill also expands the fields of study covered by the Kansas Promise Scholarship Program, which launched less than a year ago. The program covers the cost of community college or technical schools for students who are studying for professions that are high demand, high paying, or meet a critical need. Each participating school may add an entire field of study covering multiple programs to the list of eligible programs that would receive funding. The newly proposed fields 
which will need approval from the Kansas Board of Regents are agriculture, food and natural resources, education and training, law, corrections, public safety and security, distribution and logistics, and an additional field of study chosen by the college to meet local needs. The scholarship program currently covers programs for mental and physical health care, early childhood education and development, information technology and security, advanced manufacturing and building trades, and an additional program chosen by the college. This article is titled, Open Enrollment, Childhood Literacy Included in Kansas $6.4 billion education budget. Written by Miranda Moore, Wichita Beacon, May 26, 2022. The next article is titled, Getting the Job You Want, What You Need to Know Before the Interview, by Angela Johnson, The Root, May 27, 2022. When you're looking for a job, the interview process is your time to shine highlight your strengths, and call out your accomplishments. But you shouldn't be the only one answering questions. It's also your time to learn as much as you can about the company and the position you want. We spoke with Misty Gaither, G-A-I-T-H-E-R, Indeed's Senior Director and Global Head of Diversity, Inclusion, and Belonging, to get her tips on the best way to prepare for an interview to make sure you get the most out of the experience. Before you sit down with the interviewer, it is important to do your homework. Gaither says you should collect as much information as you can about the company and the state of the industry. You should also have a working knowledge of the company's leadership structure. Find out who they are as individuals and anything they've done in the past. In a non-creepy kind of way, of course, she says. A lot of information you need is readily available online. But Gaither cautions that you can't trust everything you see. Stick to credible sources like LinkedIn, Glassdoor, Fishbowl, and Indeed for your research, she says. Making sure the company's mission aligns with your values can help you identify whether or not the job is right for you. Review their mission statement organizations they're involved with, and read online company reviews from past and present employees. It is important to understand why you want to work for the company because you spend so much time working there every day. Having a connection to the mission will keep you motivated on some of your toughest days, she says. Gaither knows this firsthand. She started her career in the tobacco industry but she was never a fan. Looking back, I recognize the difficulty I had there because of the critical element of connection to the product was absent, she said. It goes without saying that you should be familiar with the products or services the company is known for. But if you already have a personal relationship with these products, Gaither cautions that you should stay objective rather than go into the interview with a glamorized view of the company. It's one thing to consume a product, but it's a very different experience to work for the company. You may go into an interview looking to confirm all the wonderful things you think you know when you should be doing a thorough job of evaluating the opportunity, she says. At the end of the interview, 
you'll likely be asked if you have any questions. And Gaither says it's best to make sure that you have a few in mind ahead of time. If you are exploring positions at more than one company, Gaither suggests going into each interview with a consistent set of questions to help you identify consistencies and differences between each company's response along the way. Gaither suggests going into each interview with a consistent set of questions to help you identify consistencies and differences between each company's response along the way. This article was titled, Getting the Job You Want, What You Need to Know Before the Interview by Angela Johnson, The Root, May 27, 2022. The next article is titled, 16-Year-Old Texas Athlete Commits to First Ever HBCU Gymnastics Program at Fisk University. Written by Nick Fenley, F-E-N-L-E-Y, Blavity News, May 26, 2022. Morgan Price, P-R-I-C-E, an elite gymnast based in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, has freshly announced what's next for her. Fisk University. As Blavity previously reported, the Tennessee Institution unveiled its brand new women's gymnastics program earlier this year. This notably made Fisk the first ever historically black college or university, HBCU, to offer an intercollegiate women's artistic gymnast team. Women's gymnastics exemplifies the values of Fisk University, determination, excellence, and a commitment to a more just and equitable future, university officials said of the matter. These values have consistently been at the forefront of women's gymnastics, and Fisk could not be more excited to welcome these remarkable student-athletes to the campus starting this coming fall. We thought it was an opportunity right now because there are so many young women who want to come to an HBCU. Dr. Van Newkirk Sr., N-E-W-K-I-R-K. The university's president noted, we've got interest right now from 60 to 70 young women. And so with that kind of interest, we said it's better now than later. About three months after the institution announced its groundbreaking program, Price officially committed to Fisk. While she initially committed to the University of Arkansas late last year, she instead opted to attend Fisk and be a part of HBCU gymnastic history. When that opportunity came up for me, the only thing on my mind was to support it because they did it for young people just like me, Price said. The 16-year-old who will graduate from Coppell High School on Friday went on to note that it's a sacrifice and an opportunity to pave the way for future black gymnasts. This article was titled, 16-Year-Old Texas Athlete Commits to First-Ever HBCU Gymnastics Program at Fisk University by Nick Fenley, Blavity News, May 26, 2022. The next article is titled, Baby Formula Shortage Highlights Racial Disparity, written by the Community Voice Staff, May 27, 2022. Columbia, Maryland. 
Associated Press. Capri Isidoro, I-S-I-D-O-R-O, broke down in tears in the office of a lactation consultant. The mother of two had been struggling to breastfeed her one-month-old daughter ever since she was born, when the hospital gave the baby formula first without consulting her on her desire to breastfeed. Now with massive safety recall and supply distributions causing formula shortages across the United States, she can't find the specific formula that helps with her baby's gas pains. It's so sad. It shouldn't be like this, said Isidoro, who lives in the Baltimore suburb of Ellicott City. We need formula for our kid. And where is this formula going to come from? As parents across the United States struggle to find formula to feed their children, the pain is particularly acute among Black and Hispanic women. Black women have historically faced obstacles to breastfeeding, including a lack of lactation support in the hospital, more pressure to formula feed, and cultural roadblocks. It's one of the many inequalities for Black mothers. They are far more likely to die from pregnancy complications and less likely to have their concerns about pain taken seriously by doctors. Low-income families buy the majority of formula in the United States and face a particular struggle. Experts fear small neighborhood grocery stores that serve these vulnerable populations are not replenishing as much as larger retail stores, leaving some of these families without the resources or means to hunt for formula. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention estimates that 20% of Black women and 23% of Hispanic women exclusively breastfed through six months compared to 29% of white women. The overall rate stands at 26%. Hospitals that encourage breastfeeding and overall lactation support are less prevalent in Black neighborhoods, according to the CDC. The Association of Women's Health Obstetric and Neonatal Nurses also says Hispanic and Black women classified as low-wage workers have less access to lactation support in their workplaces. The racial disparities reach far back in America's history. The demands of slave labor prevented mothers from nursing their children, and slave owners separated mothers from their own babies to have them serve as wet nurses, breastfeeding other women's children. In the 1950s, racially targeted commercials falsely advertised formula as a superior source of nutrition for infants. And studies continue to show that the babies of black mothers are more likely to be introduced to formula in the hospital than the babies of white mothers, which happened to Isidoro after her emergency cesarean section. Physicians say introducing formula means the baby will require fewer feedings from the mother, decreasing the milk supply as the breast is not stimulated enough to produce. Andrea Freeman, author of the book Skimmed, Breastfeeding, Race, and Injustice, said these mothers still aren't getting the support they need when it comes to having the choice of whether to breastfeed or use formula. They also may have jobs 
that do not accommodate the time and space needed for breastfeeding or pumping milk, Freeman said. Nobody's taking responsibility for the fact that they've steered families of color toward formula for so many years and made people rely on it and taken away choice. And then when it falls apart, there's not really any recognition or accountability, Freeman says. Breastfeeding practices are often influenced by previous generations, with some studies suggesting better outcomes from mothers who were breastfed when they were babies. Kate Bauer, B-A-U-E-R, an associate professor of nutritional sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health, said she began hearing back in February about Black and Latino families in Detroit and Grand Rapids feeling stuck after finding smaller grocery stores running out of formula. Some were told to go to the local office of the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, better known as WIC, the federal program that supports low-income expectant and new mothers. Between 50% and 65% of the formula in the U.S. is bought through this program. Going to the WIC office is like a full day's errands for some moms, Bauer said. She feels mothers are getting desperate enough to try foods that are not recommended for babies under six months. Yuri Navayas, a Salvadorian immigrant who works at a restaurant and lives in Laurel, Maryland, says she was not able to produce enough breast milk and struggled to find the right formula for her nearly three-month-old baby, Jose Ismael, after others caused vomiting, diarrhea, and discomfort. One time, they drove half an hour to a store where workers told them they had the type she needed, but it was gone when they got there. Her husband goes out every night to search pharmacies around midnight. It's so hard to find this type, she said, saying sometimes they have run out before they can even secure more formula. The baby will cry and cry, so we give him rice water. On a recent day, she was down to her last container and called an advocacy group that had told her it would try to get her some at an appointment in five days. But the group could not guarantee anything. Some mothers have turned to social media and even befriended other locals to cast a wider net during shopping trips. In Miami, Denise Castro, who owns a construction company, started a virtual group to support new moms during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now it's helping moms get the formula they need as they go back to work. One of them is a Hispanic teacher whose job leaves her with little flexibility to care for her two-month-old infant, who has been sensitive to a lot of formula brands. Most of the moms we have been helping are Black and Latinas, Castro said. These moms really don't have the time to visit three to four places in their lunch hour. Lisette Fernandez, a 34-year-old Cuban-American, first-time mother of twins, has relied on friends and family to find the liquid two-ounce bottles she needs for her boy and girl. Earlier this week, her father went to four different pharmacies before he was able to get some boxes with the tiny bottles. 
they run out quickly as the babies grow. Fernandez said she wasn't able to initiate breastfeeding, trying with an electric pump, but saying she produced very little. Her mother, who arrived in Miami from Cuba as a seven-year-old girl, had chosen not to breastfeed her children, saying she did not want to and take medication to suppress lactation. Some studies have attributed changes in breastfeeding behavior among Hispanics to assimilation, saying Latina immigrants perceive formula feeding as an American practice. Over the last three to six weeks, it has been insane, Fernandez said. I'm used to everything that COVID has brought, but worrying about my children not having milk? I did not see that coming. This article is titled, Baby Formula Shortage Highlights Racial Disparities, written by the Community Voice staff, May 27, 2022. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Rosemary Onkwe. Thanks for joining me.